very interesting, like, because you, you mentioned how the techniques you were using in the cameras were such an exhilarating process for you. And I actually remember this, when I, and I think I've told you, but when I was in high school, I saw a news piece in Turkey about you making timecode mm. on television. Sort of, and there, there was footage of you sort of during production. I thought, wow, that's such a great idea. Mm. And finally someone's done it. I mean, I'll just say one thing about, I mean, about the exhilaration. So this is 2000. So I was, how old was I? 51, 52? 50, yeah, early 50s, right. These were big cameras because at that time, Sony brought out, it was a, I think it was called the DV500 or something like that. P, the PD500. Mm-hmm. So it was the same as the PD-100. It used that same kind of tape, but big cassettes. So that was the only camera available at that time that would shoot the amount of time I wanted. Mm-hmm. So you have the camera. You have very big battery yeah, because it needs to run all that time. Yeah, You have an additional monitor put on it, which is like I talked about with Miss Julie. Right. So I could kind of see where I was going. You put extra handles on it so you... You know, you had that stability. Mm-hmm. The camera, each of us, four cameramen, we had to operate, do our own focus, also change aperture. <laughs> so if you're going from outside to inside, right. fluidly adjusting the aperture yeah, while not wobbling. Uh, we had a zoom lens to operate for 90, getting on for 100 minutes and following actors, walking backwards is absolutely exhausting. It sounds grueling. Absolutely grueling. I mean, literally, all of us would be have to change our clothes afterwards. You'd literally be drenched in sweat. Yeah. You had one assistant who was behind you, who had a phone in mm-hmm. case there were emergencies, so we could call each other. He had some water. I don't recall drinking because there wasn't the opportunity. Somehow, the camera assistant had a huge job. Yeah. Which was, you know, they had to coordinate the earthquakes, and they they're the, they had the stopwatch, and they were signals about tapping on the shoulder or whatever you know Mm -hmm. like three taps meant the earthquake's about to come and then we would trigger the earthquakes on the second by literally all all four camera assistants would punch (laughs) the camera guys you know almost like shove them so that you got to shove them to the beginning of the earthquake and they were well you'll see in the take that was released you know that they are all four of the earthquakes are absolutely insane yeah yeah they are nothing's cheated you know Coming out of that, I can't recall in my life, and people talk about marathon running and things like that, and never been a runner, but this was the closest thing to coming off a marathon and the feeling of exhilaration <laughs> and, I don't know, achievement, sense of achievement of having operated and, and not fucked up yeah. in that time. I've not missed a cue and, in fact, becoming more and more inventive. Yeah, You'd have to do things like negotiate with the actors. So if you're going in for an extreme close-up on someone... Mm-hmm you'd have to push past two actors to get into a close-up. Mm-hmm. And those actors would then have to support you as you leaned forward, <laughs> become camera assistants, and then ease you back so that it was... A, and then go back into character as you pulled out again. Yeah, They would have to open doors for you. So all the actors had to become responsible as camera assistants mm-hmm. too. And that was, again, something wonderful that never happens on a film. Yeah, It's kind of crossover from, you know one function to another. So it's kind of the romance of filmmaking versus the reality of filmmaking, which you just talked about. Mm. Um, And I would say, again, the first and maybe the only time I can think of where certainly in big filmmaking terms, Mm -hmm. outside of, you know, the private, personal, experimental type films that are made, Mm -hmm. where 
everybody had to work together, otherwise it wouldn't work. No. So they will say things like the cliche that really makes me laugh. It's like teamwork and we're all making the same film. And I go, do me a favor. <laughs> You're not making the same film as I'm making a film. And, you know, the camera crew aren't interested in the sound, sound aren't particularly interested in the camera, etc. You know, yeah, they do their jobs. Mm -hmm. Not in this case, not with, not with time code. It wouldn't have worked otherwise. You were all in the same boat. We're in the same boat. So you said that you used the last day's take uh, for the final film, production wraps. Um, how much sort of sound editing did you have to do? The thing about post-production on Timecode was an odd reversal of the normal process. Mm -hmm. Once we'd chosen the take, mm -hmm. it was non-negotiable. You know, Many people have said, did you cheat? I remember... Uh, sitting next to Mike Lee on a plane who blatantly accused me of cheating. It was a, a choice that you made, and uh -huh. it was between actually version 15 and version 14. And okay. I was so drawn towards version 14 because that, that would have had, you know, Laurie Metcalf in it. Yeah. But ultimately, overall, it worked at its best in the final take. So visually, there was a, that was a no problem. The sound editing took forever. Yeah. Um, because position of the voices, you know, using left and right and center and so on became a vital component. Mm -hmm. Also, you know, I think for the people who did the sound mix, it was a, a huge challenge, mm. you know, because you had sometimes where all four screens, you had people talking. To the, for the most part, I had managed to choreograph it, so that didn't happen, but there were all kinds of crossovers and where you really wanted the sound to be telling the story. Mm -hmm. So that was complicated. And interesting, I was going to say, was it so stimulating? No, I was kind of done in a way. I was yeah. like, hey, we did it. You know, come on. I've already done sound, the live sound mix. So um, I thought, why is it taking so long? Yeah, so you said, you said we did it. Were you, were you happy with the result of the experiment? As far as it went, I was ecstatic. Yeah. It, had, it demonstrated what was, what was potential, mm -hmm. possible. Um, and I think... The joy of the actors came through very strongly. The fun of the experiment, you could, uh, you know, there was a, there's a real life to it. You know, mm -hmm. I really, I do love the film very much. Yeah, it's a great film. <clears throat> um, and there is sort of a difference between sort of a film like Time Code, which is, you know, a single take over, of a story over four screens and sort of live theater that's being filmed, isn't there? Sure. It's a film. Yeah. It is essentially a film. It's not, it's not a play. Mm -hmm. It's not an excuse for something, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, there's a whole conversation about, about what time code is and what it, what it shows is possible in terms of filmmaking as opposed to real-time filmmaking. Mm -hmm. I mean, real-time filmmaking has always fascinated directors because it's a bit like climbing Everest. Yeah. You know, Hitchcock had faked it with rope. Yep. There's a fundamental reason why we are fascinated by it because if you don't interrupt the narrative with editing mm -hmm. the brain uh, will perceive the reality that is shown on on the screen in a completely different way from one which is manipulated through montage yeah that's a fact so there is a reason why why we still are fascinated by it and want to explore it 
and I'll go along with that too. I would be as interested in making that kind of a real-time film, I guess. Mm -hmm. I also know as a filmmaker it's quite boring because one of the reasons montage was invented and developed was real-time filmmaking is actually boring. Mm -hmm. So you want to be able to cut to something more interesting at -hmm. a certain point. You're like, I already got the point of that image. Yeah. I'd love to see her reaction. And I don't really necessarily want to swing the camera around to do that. Mm -hmm. I'd like a cut. Mm -hmm. Or I don't want to be aware of the fact that the actors are being so choreographed because it's a single-screen, real-time film. They're all desperate to be in the shot. Yeah. That wasn't what I was interested in. Mm -hmm. Going back to Miss Julie, I was interested in the psychology of multi-angles on the same image or variations of that image and the psychology that comes from real-time parallel narrative, Mm -hmm. which is something I had explored on stage in experimental theatre productions, but, you know, so much more interesting in the film film genre. Mm -hmm. So when the film came out, I was fascinated to see how it was perceived by critics. And then subsequently, we're now 20-something years later on, I have to say, I get deeply pissed off Mm. every time a real-time film comes out and they start talking about Russian arc, the German film. Uh, Victoria. And then another film that just came out a couple of months ago. Boiling Point. Boiling Point. Yeah. I'm I'm sure they're all fine films, and I've seen bits of them. Yeah. You know, um, but they're real-time films, single screen. That's nothing to do with um, the achievement of time code. Yeah. To me, the sad thing is that they missed the point, Mm -hmm. totally missed the point of what was so interesting about four screens and the psychology therein. At one point, I got publicly quite pissed off. Yeah, as you should. I was at the Berlin Film Festival. I was on stage and I was being presented along with the cinematographer of Russian Ark. Mm -hmm. And I was introduced as the director of Leaving Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. And then... The cinematographer was then presented as being the director of the first real-time <laughs> film ever made, Russian Ark. And I was so pissed off. I said, look, I don't want to be rude, but can I just point out that the first real-time film ever made was Time Code, and it was before Russian Ark. And not only that, I did it on four screens at yeah. the same time, not just one screen. So I just want a point of reference mm-hmm. that um, I feel people should understand the sequence and and the intention here it's also the first major film shot on digital as far yeah. as i'm aware that was released uh, maybe the first one shot on digital no no um, actually i just got in the post three days ago a very charming video mm-hmm. f- from my friend francis ford coppola mm-hmm. um, and i'd written to him and i said francis i would i'm trying to get a hold of a copy of one from the heart yeah and you can't get it anywhere no and he wrote back and he said, well, what, what format would you like? <laughs> and I said, could you please sign it? So he sent me a Blu-ray of One from the Heart. Yeah. So that was, the f- I believe, was the first studio video film. Made. Also not well received. And s- it's stunning to look at. I would and love to see it. Yeah. It's absolutely stunning. Yeah. So we'll talk about that. I want to, I want to watch it again carefully mm-hmm. and then maybe we'll, we'll talk about it. Yeah, it's interesting how sort of films like that come out, and at first they're not well-received, but now we're talking about one from the hardest, or, or Time Code is sort of like great films. Mm. So what was the general sort of critical reception when Time Code came out? Time Code had become an event. It was heralded as 
you know, ushering in the digital age, mm-hmm. which to some extent it did. It was talked about in terms of digital innovation, mm-hmm. uh, the digital revolution. The film did remarkably well for a short. It was released as a studio picture. Yeah. And in the first couple of weeks, it did had a very, very, the highest screen average of any film per the number of releases. Yeah. And um, so they went big with it, which was a huge mistake. I think the same week as Gladiator. And uh, the last time I heard from John Cali, who was about to extend my deal, I just left a message saying, the wheels fell off your film. Um, I will not be renewing your um, your, your residency at Sony Pictures. Mm-hmm. So, uh, as I say, a wonderful man, but a tricky man. I then went on a kind of tour with it. Mm-hmm. And I did... As a special event, I think you came to one of them where I, I would live mix the film. So yeah. I managed to get a hold of enough equipment so I could uh, screen the film mm-hmm. and separately have all of the soundtracks running through a mixer. And then I would live mix the film in audio and add music and change it. And, and then I really got into that and I would do things like I would stop the film and wind back and play the same scene again with a completely different mix, or I would use digital interference. And I think, again, as an extension of what I'd started to discover digitally in the making of the film, mm-hmm. in the screening of the film, these live screenings, I then started to explore all the kind of possibilities that are to do with how a film doesn't have to be a dead object. Yeah, yeah. When you screen it, it's still alive. It's still because I had all these elements. I have four screens. Yeah. I have four soundtracks. I have my choice of music. So, for example, if you start a film with, let's say, a Schubert string quartet, uh-huh. it's going to be a radically different film than if you screen exactly the same film with a piece of, let's say, extremely tough flamenco. Mm-hmm. So, uh, for example, I did that. Yeah. You know? So I would sometimes try a piece of music that was so out of left field, or I'd use pure like Moog sounds or abstract sounds. Sometimes I would take the soundtrack out altogether and have silence, just watching the faces, mm-hmm. or watching people, almost like surveillance camera. So I, I, you know, this became a whole second extension life of the film, which mm-hmm. I still do. And yeah. now I can do it from my Mac. It's mm-hmm. amazing because technology has moved on. I could do this on Logic or I could do it on Final Cut or whatever I wanted. And I now do that. I do a master class where I take version one, I think version eight, version 12, and mm-hmm. version 15 over three days. And I show, I live mix and show the students the development of the improvisation. Mm-hmm how the camera technique's involved, and I can then, in between the, each screening, I talk about how the process had resulted in this kind of a change or that kind of a change, and you can see the radical changes in, these, in those four screens. I mean, luckily for me, one of the great things about digital technology is, is the clone. Mm-hmm. So a clone is a, a perfect copy of something rather than back in the, in the analog days where you had a copy mm-hmm which was by definition a degraded copy. Right. So if you take a 35mm image and copy it, it's not as good as the original. Mm-hmm. And if you then copy that copy, Just you are then, you know, let's say, sequentially degrading everything. You can theoretically copy a digital object mm-hmm. as many times as you want. So I, 
I needed copies of all of the films. I'd made copies on um, DigiBeta. My cinematographer went into the Sony High Definition Center a couple of years ago because he wanted to go into one of the masters. They put it on high definition to discover that they had junked all of the material on timecode. Why? They wanted more shelf space. Because it was digital, it was not valued. I mean, to do that to a negative, you have to go through a big process. Yeah. Digital, just wipe it. It's It's all gone. So all of the originals have gone. I have clones of four of them, Mm -hmm. five of them, which, as I say, are invaluable teaching tools now and masterclass tools. It's very interesting because you can sort of put endless variations basically on the film, you know, just come up with a new film every time you show it when you're doing that, um, the live mix. But uh, isn't there sort of a danger of sort of things going wrong when you're doing a live mix? Part of the excitement of these live mixes with of time code was the realization that things could go horribly wrong. Mm. Um, you were in charge of something. All it takes is a piece of equipment to break down. And there are two stories which I think I'll do as separate stories as kind of annexes to this. So you can I'll just read them because I've written them down. Sure. One is of a disastrous and then but ultimately triumphant live mix in Mexico at uh-huh. the Mexico City Film Festival. And the other one was at the Getty Center in, in Los Angeles, equally potentially disastrous <laughs> and, like, and like, a, like a nightmare. And I'll read those as little kind of add-ons, if you like. That they're, sure. There's a certain charm to those stories. But I used to set myself up in the middle of the audience. Mm-hmm. I need to see the best place to see the screen. Yeah. And I have the audience all around me. And I would live mix. And they could see me moving the faders. They could see that it was real. There was one very funny time I did it at the National Film Theatre mm-hmm. and there'd been a, quite a lot of stress leading up to doing the whole thing. And so I didn't have time to go to the bathroom. We just jumped in and started doing the mix and quite a full house. And then by about halfway through, I went, oh, my God, I should have gone, I should have gone for a pee. <laughs> I thought I should be okay. But it just got worse and worse to the point where I can, I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to pee myself. And so I put it on autopilot. <laughs> so what I did was I would have all my separate soundtracks, mm-hmm. but I would also have two tracks, let's call them failsafe, okay. which were the studio mix of the film, in other words, the one that had gone out on release. Mm-hmm. I had those as a kind of fallback position. So I could bring up that. So the pi- it was the equivalent <laughs> of autopilot. And then I had to sort of go, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. And the whole audience watched me leave this live mix, run to the bathroom at the NFT and then come back and then take over mm. the controls again. That was pretty funny. Again, it's very interesting because there was a documentary a few years back called Side by Side where they sort of talked about the transition from shooting on film to digital. And, you know, I felt you should have been mentioning it because, you know, you shot yes. really the first digital film. Yes, uh, yes, yes. And, you know, time code is 2000. And then in 2004, for example, off the top of my head, Michael Mann is shooting 75% of collateral on digital. Mm-hmm. So it was, there was a huge explosion in that, you know, in those three or four years. There was. But one has to say there is a huge line of demarcation here, mm-hmm. which is that I was never interested in high definition. Right. You talk to DPs and the the conversation back then was all about, you know, 4K, 6K, yeah. 8K and everything. This obsession with, you know, the macro 
ability to reproduce an, an image. Interestingly, when you look at the best 35 millimeter images, they are now by comparison, even with the iPhone, they seem out of focus. Mm-hmm. My fascination and interest immediately was in small cameras mm. where the resolution was good enough to see, you know, like in time code. But it certainly wasn't high definition. And I'm, I'm not a huge fan of 4K and 6K. I'm not either. But it almost reminds me of what you just described is like kind of the French New Wave. Because mm. they all this new portable screen equipment sort of came out, you know, and portable, like the, they had the, I guess they were atons or mm-hmm. they were shooting outdoors and it just liberated them, you know. So at least to me it is what you just sure. said. Sure. I mean, I was being a believer in, you know, actually just make sure your sound is really good. Yeah. And, not, and don't worry so much about about the visuals because uh, if the story's good and the visual's good enough to tell the story and the sound is fabulous, mm-hmm. the audience will be hooked. Yeah. If you flip those situations around, they won't be hooked. If the sound is crap, they won't be hooked. Yeah, it's very important to have a good soundtrack. Uh, it's vital. Yeah. Vital. The quality of the voice. I mean, we're doing this podcast and <clears throat> I've gone to quite a lot of trouble mm-hmm. to make sure that these microphones... Uh, one is a Rode, mm-hmm. that's the one you're on, mm-hmm. and mine is a Neumann, mm-hmm. the sort of uh, wonderful German microphone. They're both beautiful microphones, and I just felt for a podcast that the voice quality, I mean, if I get this close, and sometimes in films, if the scene is very intimate, mm-hmm. the voice is going to be this close. Yeah. People are going to be talking like this, and you want a microphone that will do that job for you yeah that's far more important than the zoom in on the close-up of Mm. the of the face Mm. combination of the two is dynamite yeah absolute dynamite but uh there was this period around about 2000 when i was doing this work where we blissfully started to move away from this obsession with detail and technology Technology was just happened to be something that was useful. There was a camera which would shoot for 95 minutes. Mm-hmm. Fabulous. Let's rock on. Let's bring that camera on. I love it. Yeah. I love that it can do this. Yeah. I don't love it because it will show every blackhead on my face. You know, thank God these cameras were still quite soft. I wanted to ask you about sort of another type of reception for time code because you said that sort of mainstream critics didn't really maybe appreciate the film, but it sort of art i think in the arts world the film was very well received yeah i mean looking back on it i didn't put it completely together until recently when i was thinking about it but shortly after time code laurie anderson got in contact mm. with me and i ended up filming her show at the barbican on right. these same cameras and that was as a result of her seeing time code doug aitkin who's mm-hmm. incredibly famous v- artist video artist he contacted me in los angeles Mm -hmm. and then interviewed me for a book he was making i think it's called the broken screen i ended up collaborating with him more recently at something at the barbican station to station Mm -hmm. somebody sent me a clip the other day which was very touching which Mm -hmm. is of david bowie Mm -hmm. being interviewed by thomas vinterberg incredible director who did feston and they're talking about new films and everything and then suddenly out of the blue David Bowie says. What do you think of things like Mike Figgis and Time Code? I, I like very much that he's, um, 
uh, he's confronting the form of filmmaking yeah. uh, very aggressively, and he's trying yeah. to break all the borders. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's, his work stands from that. Yeah. I, I really like that. Yeah. And uh, it's interesting to see how challenged and inspired he also is. Thomas is also very gracious, and they, they do... They do say some nice things and then get on with their job. But yeah. So that crowd clearly had seen it for what I saw it as, mm-hmm. as something in an artistic sense that was going to push different kind of buttons and boundaries. Whereas the film world, I think, was not, it's not set up to actually receive work in that way. No. It's either a gimmick or, you know, I mean... We talked about the fact that 24, who acknowledged the influence, you know, yeah. did pick up on it, on the idea of real-time storytelling um, and run with that very successfully for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, yeah, I think the film was quite influential in certain circles. I mean, but it's it's great to see, like, when David Bowie's sort of saying nice about, like, a film that you did. It makes it worthwhile, you know, yeah. because you, if you want to be an experimentalist, then don't be naive and expect... Uh-huh you get an Oscar for that or something like that. Uh, it may happen by happen chance or something like mm-hmm. that, but that that's not why you're doing it. You're doing it because you want to push boundaries. But then you find yourself, you know, because of the good the good news being that I went from a £1,000 experimental film in London yeah. into being sponsored by Sony Pictures and, and John Calley. Mm-hmm. That's the good news. The bad news is then their marketing and so on will will kick in in a specific kind of way. I'm mm. certainly not complaining. Hey, I made a highly profile, influential film yeah. that I'm to this day very, very proud of. And to this day, the film is still alive. I still can basically turn up and do a live mix of this film. Mm. And it will be a new film. What did the experience of making Time Code and writing Time Code and sort of, you know, what, what influence did that ha- have on your work after Time Code? Yeah, it's a good question. Hindsight is, is such a wonderful thing. I think I have to go back to uh, Leaving Las Vegas. Because mm-hmm. Leaving Las Vegas took me to a level that gave me an entree into w- a world that I had not been invited into before, really, on that level. One cannot underplay the importance of o- the Oscars and, you know, the nominations and the profile of that film. That film won every Critics Award mm. and the Spirit Awards and the Oscars. And uh, so I was cruising on that wave, mm. which basically got me into a position where John Kelly said, come and do time code, because without leaving Las Vegas, that wouldn't have happened. And I'm still on that wave of coming off, off time code, possibly somewhat arrogant, somewhat, you know, confident, full of energy and kind of full of myself, really. You know, I mean, full of the joy of experimentation. Mm-hmm. But most importantly, still with some kind of clout where I was able to set up my next film, which was Hotel, mm-hmm. with a reasonable budget, with, again, a huge cast of, of improvising actors, A-list actors as mm-hmm. well as unknown actors, in Venice, mm-hmm. where I get to shoot an experimental film for a extended period of time with no script mm-hmm. based loosely around the Duchess of Malfi mm-hmm. as, a, as a punk film the most amazing cast um, it was amazing yeah and I set out to shoot again a four screen film and then very quickly into the production 
realizing that that's not necessary to have four screens all the time. Actually, you could have two screens. You could have, you could have widescreen. You could have a little screen in the middle mm. of the screen. You do anything you want. Mm-hmm. And so I basically improvised. And I had as my palette this amazing cast of actors who were in love with the idea mm-hmm. of living in a hotel out of season in Venice, getting drunk every night. Burt Reynolds is coming in for four days tomorrow. David Schwimmer's in David it. David Schwimmer. Again, Salma's in it. Salma Hayek, Lucy yeah. Liu. Malkovich. John Malkovich has got a day off. He comes to shoot for two hours. Yeah. Uh, Julian Sands again. Yeah. Uh, Danny Houston again. My, you know, my guys. Yeah. A bunch of, the, uh, some of the same cinematographers that I had on Time Code. Mm-hmm. A very understanding and tolerant producer, Edgy Stroh, who let me run. Mm-hmm. I originally, I, you know, hadn't planned to have an edit because it was going to be like time code. Mm-hmm. And then I realized, no, no, I'm, I don't want to do that. There are times when I even say to the actors, they say, well, what about doing this? And I go, no, just take a camera, camera person, go off and shoot it, bring it back. We'll look at it later. Mm. Much more experimental than, than time code, much more say. loose. And I think, it's, I think it's an incredible film mm-hmm. where you see the complete freedom of experimentation where I can do anything I want. And I realize how blessed I was in that period, cause, but I'm still on that wave. Of, mm-hmm. you know, if I try and raise the money to do that now, there's not a hope in hell. I could do it privately, mm-hmm. and I do, uh, but I couldn't expect to get millions of dollars to pay those actors to live in a hotel to do that. I'd have to do it much more guerrilla style. You mm-hmm. know? So... Time code kind of infected me with this experimental enthusiasm just to go further and further with digital and then how to edit it yourself. Mm. You know, the next thing is you go on to Final Cut Pro mm-hmm. and you kind of go just like Photoshop where you suddenly realize not only can you shoot it yourself, you can edit it yourself, you can do all this stuff. And it's, it's fantastic. Did you, did you edit uh, time code on... Um well, you, you didn't edit time. Didn't you didn't have to. But for example, sorry, hotel. Did you edit hotel on um, on a Mac or on a computer? Was it Avid or something uh-huh. like that? It was Avid. Uh-huh. Uh, and I had two editors, both of whom had nervous breakdowns. Uh, and, and one of them went into therapy. Okay. Um, sorry. Yeah. Um, Not because of the film. Sort of because of me and the film. Okay. Because of my manic insistence on, no, we can do that. Mm. This could be split screen, but can you techniques that... That didn't exist. Mm. And they were doing it on the Avid, which is slow. Yes, it is. So, yeah. I mean, I, now that I know how this all works, upstairs in my studio here, I can I can create split screen, you know, in a, in a heartbeat. It's second nature now. Mm. But pff, no, this was all and the sound mix again, you know. and yeah, I mean, Everything was on these little tapes. And, you know, I did things like, because I was in such a kind of inventive mode. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Mini disc recorders that just come out. Yes. Remember mini discs? Of course. If you're shooting four cameras in a public space like Venice, full of tourists, mm. and the actors are doing lines from a period Jacobean play, how do you get good sound? You can't use a boom. So I started experimenting. I bought expensive little Lavelier microphones mm-hmm. from um, Sennheiser, and then I wired them up to a mini disc recorder. Mm-hmm. And I came up with a system where the actors all carried their own recording in their pocket. Mini disc recorders, if you recall, were very small. Yes. You could yes. slip them in an inside pocket. Yes. 
The idea being that at a certain point, the actors had to turn on the record button mm -hmm. on their own recorders, as giving the actors a responsibility. Mm -hmm. Of course, sometimes with very amusing results when you get into the editing room and you kind of go, at the point when they were supposed to turn their recorder on, they were turning it off. <laughs> <laughs> and they were turning it on when I said cut. They were pressing the button again. It was now recording. I was now having to listen to them talking about me mm -hmm. and what a bastard I was. So whatever, <laughs> you know. But by and large, successful. Yeah. Like, you know, again, started just, there must be a way of inventing something that's much simpler. The digital system immediately is more accurate than the analog system in yeah. terms of time. So if, even on a simple thing like a mini disc recorder, if you record somebody, it's not going to drift because you're also shooting on a digital camera. And digital equipment is more or less accurate all the time. Over yeah. a period of an hour, it's not even going to lose a second. Yeah. So when you come to synchronize these things later, it's not so complicated. Mm -hmm. Back in the day with analog, it was much more, you'd get much more drift. Sure. So it seemed to me the technology was offering up all these opportunities. So I would had no interest whatsoever in high definition. I just want the low def stuff is fantastic. Yeah. I go up and down Tottenham Court Road and I would just go into all these shops and try another piece of equipment. Yeah. It'd be a hundred quid or something. Yeah. I go, okay, I'll deconstruct it, see if it works. It's interesting. The journalist Simon Sharma actually sort of mentioned time code in an article in The Guardian about sort of the expansion, the possibilities of sort of narrative expansion. Mm -hmm. It seems like maybe you took that to maybe another extreme with hotel, or was it just completely, mm -hmm. were you just going completely experimental on that? A new menu had been presented mm -hmm. to artists, if mm -hmm. you like. If you go as far as to call yourself an artist as a filmmaker, which I do, mm -hmm. then, wow, suddenly new technology presents itself, and of course you want to run with it in the same way when the camera. So anyway, that 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 was some of the stuff that you know around that those are the main points i think around around time code mm -hmm. and hotel and i put the two of them together what was very interesting is i came out of that wonderful period of experimentation and liberation and freedom mm -hmm. and suddenly did one of the biggest studio films i'd been offered which was uh, cold creek manor cold creek manor yeah dennis quaid and um sharon stone mm -hmm. shot in in toronto mm -hmm. and you know it's a big big production and i remember on the first day shooting on that film fighting my way through these trucks to get to the hero house which i had been priming for the last five weeks to let the garden become overgrown and you know because that's what it needed to be finally on this searingly hot day with the bluest bluest sky abandoning my driver and the car and walking up this country lane to get to the location. I arrived there and saw that the entire garden had been destroyed by the grips and electric department laying cables mm -hmm. and that the people responsible for the garden were now spraying it with green paint mm -hmm. and trying to make it erect again, you know, because it was so crushed and looked so awful. And I freaked out and I said, why did this happen? Yeah. And they said, oh, so it's the electric department because of the lights. And I went, Lights, it's, it's the hottest, clearest, brightest thing I've ever seen <laughs> since the beginning of creation. And then I went to, to Declan and said, why are we lighting this? And he said, because by the time we get to shoot it, it'll be getting dark and I'll need to light it. Yeah. And why will it take so long? Because of the trucks and the electrics and the destroyed garden 
So we will not be able to shoot it in real daylight. We'll have to fake it. And I had a flashback and was thinking, wow, five months ago, I was in a hotel in Venice, 40 actors shooting an experimental improvised film. You know, this is like we are worlds apart. Yeah. So anyway, thanks for today, Ali. Um, we'll pick up this and see where it goes next time. Thanks, Mike. Pleasure.